Let's join together in prayer one more time before we open the word and hear it read and preached. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning. Your word would be active and living as you have promised that your spirit would stir and move. We know that our Lord and Savior said that the sheep hear his voice. So we would pray this morning that as we gather together as sheep, that we would hear the call of our Good Shepherd. When we read these words, that we would know his cry, that we would know his voice, and that would minister to each of us as sheep as we have need. We pray, Lord Jesus, that as our Good Shepherd, you would tend to us as your flock. You know each of us, our ins and outs. You know us better than we know ourselves. And so I pray that you would preach a better sermon than this preacher has. And that you would preach to each of your sheep as they have need. And that you would tend to them. Feed your sheep, O Lord, out of the abundance of your love. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 50. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, after three years in the Gospel of Matthew, we've come to the cross. And we've come to the death of our Lord and our Savior. I wonder how often you think of the cross. And I don't mean just that cursory thought, but where you really think upon the cross and meditate upon the cross and seek to take in the glories and the beauty of the cross. I've often thought that if I could get you and get me to think about two things more often, two things that would shape our minds, that would give our souls peace, that would help to shape our lives more. There are two things that I think do that beyond anything else. If we could just think upon them more, the first is heaven, and the second is the cross. And it's for the same reason, it's because of who is there. In heaven, you are reflecting upon your Christ exalted. And on the cross, you're reflecting upon your Christ humbled. If you and I were thinking more upon those two things more often, I think we would be in much better places as Christians. I want to think this morning upon the cross, obviously, as we go through this text and want to see what the Lord might have to say to us in those words that He cries out on the cross and see what we can discern from them. When we arrive here in verse 45, Jesus has already been hanging on the cross for three hours. 
So he has been there for three hours or for 180 minutes or for 10,800 seconds. And now Matthew tells us that he is going to hang there for another 10,800 ticks of the clock. It's going to be in these final three hours what would be at our time from noon to 3 p.m. in the afternoon that he is going to hang on this cross in this passage and then finally at three o'clock in the afternoon he will give up, yield his spirit to the Father and he will take his final breath in the flesh on earth. And it is here at the beginning of those final three hours that we're told by Matthew that darkness descended over all the land. How far did this darkness extend? I don't think we can say dogmatically. It it, it must be that it was more than just over Calvary. I think it was more than over Jerusalem. My best guess thinking through this, looking at other texts, probably not to the ends of the earth, but it is spreading out over all the land of Israel. And that is because of what it is a sign of. Darkness has come upon the land. It has descended upon the land because judgment has come upon the land and has come upon the nation of Israel. They had rejected God. And in particular, they had rejected the Christ, the Son of God. But it's even more than that is the reason that darkness is coming upon the land. It's not just because of the judgment upon the land and just because of the judgment upon Israel. Darkness is coming upon the land because judgment is coming upon the Christ, the Son of God who hangs upon that tree. Fulfill the prophecy of Amos 8, 9, and 10. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight, and so he did. This would have been very odd. It would have been odd for a number of reasons. One is because this is the time of the Passover, and so this is the time of the full moon. You you wouldn't have had any kind of darkness at this time. Some have said, well, it was a full moon, and so what must have happened is that there must have been some kind of eclipse of the sun that occurred so that there was darkness over the land, but, but that's not the case. An eclipse happens for a few seconds. This is happening for a few hours. Some will say, well, it must be a sandstorm that arose, and there was a sandstorm that arose and somehow shielded out the sun so that its light wasn't piercing that part of the world. And no, there's no evidence for that either in the text or anywhere in the scriptures. So what's happening? It's just that nature is responding to what is happening. It's what you and I would call a miracle where nature is doing something that is foreign to what it normally does. All of nature in this moment is taking a breath. Why? Because this isn't just another Jew outside of Jerusalem that is dying. This is the Lord of life. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the light of the world. And his life is hanging in the balance. I want to look at what Christ experienced on the cross in two ways this morning. First, he was isolated, and second, he was forsaken. And they're both clear in our text that he was isolated and that he was forsaken. First, that he was isolated. Both of them we get from this cry of Christ upon the cross. It is This cry where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this has been labeled in history the cry of dereliction. Dereliction is just a fancy word that means isolation. It's a cry of isolation, or we might use the term abandonment. He has a cry here of abandonment, of dereliction. He's quoting from Psalm 22.1 when he says these words, even In this moment of extreme agony as he is dying upon the cross, it is 
the words of God that are on his lips because they are on his mind because they have gripped his heart. And so he cries out in the words of the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Eli, Eli, as Matthew says here. Or as other gospel writers like Mark will say, Eloi, Eloi. Eli, Eli being the Hebrew, Eloi, Eloi being the Aramaic. We, we don't know what he spoke when he was on the cross. Jesus was probably most definitely fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and most likely Latin. Was he speaking Aramaic or Hebrew upon the cross in those final words? We don't know. But when he cries out, Eli, Eli, or he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, the bystanders that are passing by or the bystanders that are there hear Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi, and immediately their minds runs to Elijah, Elijah. He must be calling down Elijah. Remember Elijah, the prophet of the Old Testament, the great prophet of the Old Testament who was taken up in a chariot of fire to the heavens and never experienced death. And so the Jews at this time, they had some kind of idea that if a righteous man was in trouble, that, Eli, that Elijah would come back and Elijah would somehow save and help a righteous man. And so that's why when the man fills the sponge to give Jesus a drink, some of the bystanders say, no, 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 don't do it. We want to see. Because Elijah actually come and, and save Jesus. But you see... Elijah will not come to save Jesus because Jesus came to save Elijah. Jesus doesn't need Elijah. Elijah needed Jesus. And that's why he has come into the world. No one's coming to help Jesus in this moment. That's not the plan. No one will come. Christ is on the cross in those final hours. He truly is alone like none of us ever have or ever will suffer. None of us. There's never been an orphan. There's never been a widow. There's never been a bride left at the altar. There's never been a husband divorced. There's never even been a person abused or a person that feels like they are alone in their marriage that has suffered loneliness like our Savior. Those things are horrific. And they can be absolutely agonizing. And they can be deep, deep wounds of feeling like I am completely alone. But none, none, have experienced aloneness like him. None. He is bearing the soul-crushing weight and guilt of sin all alone. Matthew has been preparing us for this as we've journeyed to the cross in this gospel. You remember what Jesus prophesied when he was at the Lord's table instituting it with the disciples. He prophesied that they would all betray him. He quoted from Zechariah. He said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so Jesus was struck and so all of the disciples have abandoned him. They have all left him isolated. The man whom the crowds cheered are now jeering. He's alone. to think about this with me is that Jesus on the cross, he is in many ways fulfilling all things that have been prophesied about the Christ to come. And one of those is that he would be a high priest. All those high priests in the Old Testament were just, were just shadows looking forward to Christ, the, the great high priest. And when he is on the cross, he is functioning as our high priest. He's functioning as that mediator between man and God. When you think about the high priest in the Old Testament, the high priest, I remember Sinclair Ferguson pointing this out in a sermon uh, years ago, that that high priest often, when 
or when he was getting ready for that day of atonement, which is, which is detailed there in Leviticus 16, that he is going through step after step after step where he's just being isolated from the people of God. Each of those steps is but just another thing where he is set apart, where he's made distinct, where he's being isolated, where he is set apart on his own. So that when that moment of moments comes, when on the Day of Atonement he goes into the Holy of Holies, he is truly going in all alone. He's by himself. I think we often imagine that entering the Holy of Holies would be something wonderful. It would be something magnificent. It would be like being awarded a backstage pass to a great concert at a better venue than the Wharton. And think, oh, it would be great. You get to see everything. And in some ways, going into the Holy of Holies was, was a blessing and Magnificent, but in another way, it was just a thing of fear. Going in before the holy, mighty, awesome God of the universe and doing that alone. In the Old Testament, when the high priest would go in, they would put a robe on him, and that robe would have bells around the outside of the garment, and it was so that those on the outside could hear whether he was still moving within. Why? Because it's an awful thing to go before a holy God. Jesus is isolated as the high priest, the mediator between God and man, and he goes in with no robe. He goes in with no bells. He is naked upon that cross, and he shall be struck down in this holy of holies that we call the cross. Be struck down. A son does this alone and feels such isolation that he addresses the father differently in this moment on the cross, and that cry of dereliction he changes how he refers to the Father. This is the only time ever, the only time ever in the Gospels he doesn't refer to God as his Father. He cries out to him with that distant language, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? experience in a distance he has never experienced before, never for all of eternity, never. What does that mean? What, what does that mean when we say that? Me and my wife and I, for a number of years, we plotted and we planned and we saved to adopt. We so badly wanted to have children and oh, we loved the child we were going to adopt before we ever saw a picture of the child we were going to adopt, before we ever received a referral. And then finally that day came where we received the referral of Grayson and got her picture. And now we had a picture, this one that we had loved before, that we had didn't even know. Now we had a picture, and then we got on a plane, we go to Taiwan, and uh, I remember that day where she is put in our arms, and finally this one that... We have loved for so long. She's in her arms. Took her back to the hotel. We bathed her. We dressed her. She was really into making fishy faces. She and I made fishy faces for hours as she laid on the floor on the bed. And then I remember it became night, and the hotel that we were in had given us this crib. And I remember Lee and I sitting on the edge of our bed, holding Grayson, looking at this crib as first-time parents, and anxiety seized us. Because do you think, because I think, that crib, the gaps in those bars is really large. 
And I remember us debating, looking at the crib and thinking her head could get stuck in between those bars. And so we cleaned out our suitcase and we put her in the suitcase and packed all kinds of clothes around her and looked down at her and that felt really weird. So we picked her up out of that, so we pulled out the dresser drawer and we got the dresser drawer and put her in that and put clothes around her and it didn't take away the weirdness. Uh, and so finally we decided we are going to put her in this crib for the night. And as first-time parents, I think I got up every single half hour through the night to check on her. I would get out of bed, walk over, look down into that crib, make sure she was still breathing, still sleeping, and her head wasn't in the vice of the bars. We loved her for so long. We loved her for years and couldn't dare think of the possibility of anything harming her. Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father for all of eternity. How, how do you even get your mind around that? For all of eternity. I want to be careful that love doesn't stop here at the cross. I want to be clear about that. What happens is that the son doesn't feel or receive the father's help in sparing him. And in that way, he was isolated. We can make errors here. I think we often do. We sing that Stuart Townsend hymn here, and I love it. I sing it with a full voice. I have no problem singing it with a full voice. Uh, but there's that line in there that really troubles me. I understand it. I will sing that line because I think it's poetic and I think we can interpret it in a way that it's okay, but it's just a problematic line. We sing from that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and we sing that line, The Father Now Turns His Face Away. Does the Father turn His face away? And that he abandons the son on the cross. Now, Jesus is not isolated in that way. The father doesn't leave the son. Some say such things as the Trinity was torn apart on the cross, and that is horrific heresy. The Trinity was not torn apart. That did not happen, and that cannot happen. God is one. He cannot be divided, as we've discussed in the evening sermon series over these last number of weeks. No, in fact, the Father is pleased with the Son. He has never been more pleased with the Son than when the Son is submitting to His will and giving Himself on the cross. Jesus does not lose the presence of the Father. The Father, by the Spirit, in fact, is sustaining the Son upon the cross. The Son is able to endure the cross because the Father, by the Spirit, is sustaining Him. What's happening then? In what way is He left alone by the Father? Or in what way is He isolated? I'm even fine if we define it correctly. How is He abandoned by the Father on the cross? I'm fine using that language. I think Psalm 22 gives us the answer. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And verse 1 continues. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. It's not that the Father abandoned the Son and that the Father is not there. Rather, it is that the Father does not help the Son to escape the death that He is suffering upon the cross and all that it contains. He's not sparing His Son that death. And in this way, the son feels isolated. In this way, we could say very much that the son was abandoned. 
Jesus must face this death, and he must face it as the Savior of the world. And he is left alone in this way by everyone and everything. Because he is doing what only the God-man could do. And he is doing what only the God-man must do. leads to the second thing we see, and surely the harder thing that Jesus is experiencing upon the cross. And he uses the word, he tells us, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we're on thin ice. I, this is hard to discuss. How, how, how can we speak about the Father forsaking the Son. What, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? If there is mystery in the Trinity, which there is, if there is mystery in the Incarnation, there is, surely there is much, if not even more mystery in this, that the Father, the Eternal Father, pours out wrath upon the Eternal Son, and yet the Father and the Son with the Spirit are one God. How do we make sense of this? What does it mean? Well, it can't mean that the Father stopped loving the Son. As we already mentioned, the Father always loved the Son. It also can't be, as we said, that the Father was somehow disappointed in the Son. As we mentioned, He has never been more proud of the Son in a very real sense than when the Son is giving Himself for sinners upon the cross. It is this. That the Son experiences the forsakenness of the Father and that the Father turns His holy anger upon the Son. The Son is receiving the holy anger of His Father. And in this, He is forsaken. Jesus knew this was coming. He knew this was why He came into the world. He had prophesied this multiple times in the Gospels. He will most often use the illustration of a cup. He will use it on multiple occasions. You remember that when John and James, the brothers, come to him with their mother and they ask Jesus, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left when you come into your kingdom? Jesus' response to them is a question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? And they say in ignorance and complete foolishness, yes, we're able Remember that at the Lord's table, Jesus will, in instituting the Lord's table, He will say, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, as He speaks of the cup. But most importantly, the, the cup, the weight of the cup, we see it when He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, He goes into that garden, and He takes those three inner disciples with Him, and He sets them down to pray for Him as He goes off by Himself alone to pray to his Father, and he has asked them to support him, but they don't support him, and so he is truly alone in every sense of the word when he goes off to pray to his Father. And do you remember the prayer that he prays over and over to his Father three times? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. What is that cup? It's the cup that Ezekiel prophesied about, that Isaiah prophesied about, that Habakkuk prophesied about, that Isaiah prophesied about, and other Old Testament prophets prophesied about. It's the cup that symbolizes God's wrath. That in this cup is the wine of God's wrath. And Jesus as the Christ is to take that cup and He is to drink that cup to its bottom. He is forsaken. He receives the wrath, the holy anger of His Father for sin. Donald MacLeod, a wonderful Reformed theologian of our day, speaking about what Jesus experienced on the cross, said this. He said that anger that Jesus received from the Father, that anger 
was no additional fact or circumstance of the cross. It was in the circumstances. That is, the anger was in the pain, in the loneliness, in Satan's whispers, and in heaven's deafness. And under that anger, his identity contracted. Jesus' identity contracted to the point where the whole truth about him was that he was the sin of the world. He was carrying it. Heaven held him answerable for it, and he was it. He sinned. We're back there in the garden. Jesus said, requested of his father three times, Father, take this cup from me. He didn't want in his humanity to drink this cup of his father's wrath. Remember years ago, Ethan was, my son was, must have been six or seven years old. I was uh, trying to get him into a sport, trying to talk him into soccer. I even coached a soccer team. He didn't like soccer. Try to talk him into baseball. No interest in baseball. Football, no interest in football. He wanted to play hockey. Okay? Well, you have to learn to ice skate to play hockey, son. So we signed up for ice skating lessons. And... He did ice skating lessons, and he loved it, loved it. We finished ice skating lessons, and now it was time to sign up for hockey. And so at the rink we were at, I went to their office to find out what league I could sign my six, seven-year-old son up for to play in a hockey league, and I found all of their hockey leagues were on Sunday. So I found another ice rink here in town where they did hockey leagues and I went to them, I called them, I visited them, I met with people there to say, is there somewhere my son can play in a hockey league and all theirs were on Sunday. So I went to my son one day and I said, son, I'm sorry, you won't be able to play hockey. And he looked up with those six or seven-year-old sad eyes, and he looked up at me and he said, Oh, Daddy, you're taking away my only dream in life. <laughs> As a father, I want to give all to my son. I want to give him all that I can. Father, always, always had given all to the Son. The Son had always, always received all from the Father. Whatever the Son asked from the Father, it was His. When Jesus says to Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. It's not, Peter, you might be sifted. No, I, the Son, prayed for you to the Father. It's guaranteed you won't be sifted because whatever I ask of the Father, He gives to me. It has always been that way. And yet the Son in the garden says, Father, Take this cup from me. And now he hangs upon the cross because the Father's answer was no. No. He's forsaken. When he's on that cross, Jesus asks the question, Why? Right question. People struggle here. They say, well, how can Jesus be asking why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can he answer, how can he ask that? Didn't he know? Yes, he knew. He also didn't know. 
Some say, well, it must be a lack of faith on his part. Isn't this a sign of a lack of faith and faithfulness that on the cross he is crying out to his father, why, father? It's not a lack of faithfulness. My answer would be it would be a lack of faithfulness if he didn't have this cry. You see, he knows. He knows that he is the lamb without spot or wrinkle, that he is without blemish, that he is the perfect righteous man of God. And so it is very right that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in one very real sense, he doesn't deserve the forsakenness. And yet in another, he does. Because as Paul says in Galatians 3, he was made sin for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. had to be. He lived a perfect life so he could be a perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice was offered for sinners both to appease God's anger and to remove the stain of sin from us. He had to be forsaken. He dies under the weight of his father's condemnation. B.B. Warfield, the old Princeton theologian from the 19th century wrote a famous article. It's just an article, but it's become a classic on the emotional life of the Lord Jesus. And in that article, he makes this point. He says that though Jesus died on the cross, he did not die of the cross. He didn't die of the cross. But then what did he die of, Dr. Warfield? Warfield surmised that Jesus died, as we might commonly say, he said, of a broken heart. That is to say, he died of the strain of the mental suffering of his father, his eternal father, that he has forever been in harmony and peace with and the object of his love that under that mental strain of receiving the condemnation of his father, that is what he died of. Why would something so incredibly awful occur? Because it was the only way to save sinners. It's the only way. To use theological language for there to be both propitiation and expiation, he had to die. Propitiation, that is, aimed at God. The wrath of God had to be appeased. He has to be wrathful towards sin. He is a holy, righteous God. He has to be just. He has to uphold righteousness and holiness. So he must exercise wrath towards sin. And so Christ's death upon the cross propitiates, it appeases the wrath of God. But there also must be expiation, that is, it must be aimed at man, it must remove the guilt, it must remove the sin, it must remove the condemnation from us. And it was only the perfect sacrifice of a perfect life of a God-man that could both propitiate God and expiate sin and guilt from man. So he had to die. He had to receive the curse of his father. And don't fall into the trap to thinking he does this reluctantly. Though he is wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane, he does not do this reluctantly. He knows that he came into the world to seek and to save the lost. He knew that he would give his life as a ransom for many. He knew it. He is always the man of faith at every point. And even in this moment of forsakenness, you see it. He has faith. He cries out, my God, my God, there is faith. 
And it's blown up in big picture for you in the very end where Matthew says here, he says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. What did he say with that loud voice? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. But the other gospels do. John and Luke tell us, he said, Father, he's back to Father, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He is ever the man of faith. And then John says, he utters those final words, it is finished. The redemption is done. All that has been prophesied, all that was established in eternity past, that the Son of God would come into the world to live and die for sinners, it is now The one who was isolated and the one who was forsaken. I give you three quick applications. First, first, I want to address critics of the cross. Some of you even now are sitting here, maybe online sitting and saying, ah, I don't like this. I don't like that you're talking about wrath. And God pouring out wrath upon His Son. Every generation, it seems like, has to struggle through this. Every generation there is an attack upon the wrath-filled cross. In our generation, you will hear people say, well, it is divine child abuse. It is unnecessary. People will say it is barbaric, it is offensive. Well, it's not divine child abuse. It wasn't unnecessary, but it was barbaric. And it is offensive. If you aren't offended by the cross, then you don't understand the cross. The cross is offensive. We're meant to draw back when we think about the cross that the Father would pour out His wrath upon the Son. Jared Wilson recently say, said, Satan would love for you to keep your gospel nice and respectable. And isn't that true? The Father pouring out His wrath upon the Son, that's offensive. But here's what you have to understand. Denying wrath at the cross denies the heinousness of our sin. If we have a wrathless cross, we have a weak view of sin. The grotesque cross is necessary because of the grotesqueness of our sin. No ugly cross, no ugly sin. No offensive cross, no offensive sin. My, sin, my friends, a wrathless cross is not a saving cross. It saves you from nothing. Second, No doubt, in a room of this size, there are some of you that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. You don't know Christ died for you, crucified for you. I'll tell you this this morning, there's no better news you can ever hear. There's no greater news than the fact that the Father would be willing to send His Son, His only begotten Son, and pour out His wrath upon His Son. There is no better news than that the Son willingly gives His life in submitting His will to the Father for sinners like you. Ask why. This is why it's such good news. It's because the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that the son so loved the father and so loved you that he willingly gave his life. And when you begin to see the cross through this and you begin to understand that all of this was a divine act of love aimed at you, it changes everything. It's a famous story of, about Karl Barth 
Karl Barth was considered by many to be the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He had a great effect upon different quarters of the church, some for ill, some for good. Uh, but Bart was considered by many a great theologian. He was brought over to the United States on multiple occasions. One time he was on a tour of different Ivy League schools. And he was at one of these Ivy League schools and he was giving a lecture. And you have a bunch of smart people in the room, Ivy League school, not quite Michigan State, but they're up there. And all of these smart people trying to impress one another now that it's time for a Q&A time with this great theologian and to ask him the most difficult question they could come up with. Let's test how much he knows and let's show how much we know. And one of the students came up with what no doubt was the best question of the day and they said, Dr. Bart, tell us what is the greatest thought you have ever had? Pretty good question. And so that Dr. Bart responded very quickly and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Greatest thought you can have. Greatest thought. He so loved sinners that he died for them. Finally, Christian, I want you to know what this, this cry of dereliction means for you. I want you to understand this. Often, as Christians, we're going through life, and the waters are high, the waters feel deep. We're yet in another trial. It feels like we are alone. We have been abandoned. God is not with us. The heavens are shut to us. It feels like the church has rejected us. It feels like family has turned their back on us. It feels like we don't have a friend in the world. It feels like we are forsaken. And you go through those deep waters, and that feeling can be strong. But you see, there is a vast difference between feeling and what Jesus experienced. He did not feel forsaken. He was forsaken. And because he was forsaken, that means that you never are forsaken. No matter what you feel, Never. If you are in Christ, never. Let's close with this. Elizabeth Barrett Browning was a great poet, Christian poet. I'd never read this poem until D.A. Carson had pointed out uh, years ago in a sermon, but it, uh, it's a poem that she wrote about William Cowper. William Cowper, many of you will know, he has written many of our hymns that we sing here at URC. William Cowper is a, a fascinating figure in that he was a man who struggled with severe, severe, severe depression. John Newton was his pastor, and Newton was often writing letters to Cowper. And, and Cowper, in those moments of severe depression, would often wonder whether he was forsaken by God, whether he was left alone, and whether he was destitute. And Elizabeth Barrett Browning, in this poem that she writes, and she entitles it Cowper's Grave, where she is recounting all the ways that Cowper's depression was used by the Lord to help bless other people in the church by the writing of his hymns. And then she closes with these lines in the poem. She says, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry, this universe, universe hath shaken. 
It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amidst his lost creation that of the lost no son should use these words of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you never, ever have to utter those words. He's isolated and forsaken for you and me. This is the glory of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning that you are a God who is willing to forsake your Son for such common rebels as us. Lord Jesus, you were willing to bear the weight and the guilt of that sin alone. To hold up underneath the wrath of your Father for sinners such as us. Forgive us that thanksgiving and praise is not more often in our hearts and upon our lips. Forgive us that our lives are so little about you. Forgive us that we often think tritely and fleetingly of the cross. Would you press it home and upon us today even more? May we live in light of it to your glory and to your praise. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.